You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 2nd of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up on today's programme... As U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken prepares to travel to Israel once again on Friday, the Hamas-controlled Gazan Health Ministry says the death toll has surpassed 9,000. Not in the face of an intensifying strategic competition in the Indo-Pacific and around the world. Will tomorrow also see an escalation on the northern front with Hezbollah for Israel? We'll check in on Ukraine after it experiences the heaviest day of shelling this year. And why are birds being renamed in the United States? All that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McAvinney. First, Gaza has experienced fierce fighting overnight, with the Israeli military saying it's killed dozens of Hamas fighters after having broken through the group's defensive lines. This morning, the Hamas-run health ministry declared the death toll in Gaza had surpassed 9,000, with 32,000 people injured. Hannah McCarthy is a Jerusalem-based journalist reporting on Israel and Palestine. Hannah, thank you for joining us. Firstly, what can you tell us about the fighting overnight in the Strip? Sure. So the IDF have confirmed that 18 Israeli soldiers have been killed since Tuesday. Uh, They say there were four different kind of um, on-the-ground battles that were fought between Hamas militants and Israeli soldiers and there was one other casualty from a, a mortar attack on Kibbutz Berry, which is now being used as a military base uh, on the Israeli side. Uh, so the kind of information flow we're getting about casualties uh, among Israeli soldiers, uh, it's it's a bit slower uh, than we might expect because the Israeli um, press office are kind of controlling the flow. Um, and, you know, there's concerns about, you know, uh, how uh, increasing casualties of Israeli soldiers will affect perception of the war among the Israeli public. And what is the current feeling on the perception of how the campaign is going? Uh, I think there there was broad support for a ground invasion in Israel. Uh, people were you know, primed for that uh, when it happened on Friday. Uh, there had been a mass mobilization uh, of reservists, you know, people coming uh, from abroad, people leaving their jobs to go and join uh, the Israeli military. But I think now as the the news reports of uh, Israeli soldiers dying uh, and the casualties uh, are increasing on the Israeli side, it'll definitely, I think, um, you know, start a, a more robust conversation that maybe hasn't been very big in, in Israeli society, you know, about what the actual purpose of this ground invasion is uh, and, you know, whether there needs to be, you know, a ceasefire or a pause or whatever, whichever kind of language you're using. Mm. And on the Palestinian side, there's been an update on the Jabalia refugee camp strike earlier in the week. Sure. So uh, we're getting figures that about 200 Palestinians have died and another uh, 100 uh, or 120 are are unaccounted for, uh, which is a huge uh, loss of life um, from um, this kind of very densely populated civilian area. Uh, The IDF have said that they've killed a, a senior a Hamas commander who was uh, helped to orchestrate uh, the 7th of October attack, 
But there's been uh, quite a lot of condemnation uh, from other governments and uh, the UN as well, who said that, you know, this is possibly a war crime. It's not proportionate uh, to strike a densely populated civilian area in order to take out one senior Hamas uh, commander. Uh, The IDF have said they also killed, you know, dozens of other Hamas militants, but it's not clear to what extent they were Hamas militants versus civilians uh, living in Jabalia. Mm. And tomorrow, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is set to visit Israel again. What's he hoping to achieve with this latest trip? Uh, well, the U.S. has been, you know, investing enormous times, uh, amount of time in the diplomatic efforts around uh, this conflict. Uh, this is uh, Blinken's second trip uh, to Israel. Uh, he's due to uh, meet with Netanyahu in Israel and other uh, members of the Israeli government, uh, and then he'll also be going on to Jordan. Uh, Jordan has just recently recalled its ambassador from Israel. Uh, Jordan has a long-standing peace agreement since the 90s with Israel. So the fact that it's calling, recalling its ambassador from Israel, um, because and it says it's not going to return uh, its ambassador until there's a, a ceasefire in Gaza. You know, it's a very worrying trend for uh, Israel's negotiation or uh, relations with its uh, Arab neighbours. Uh, we've also seen kind of you know question marks over whether the Abraham Accords, you know can still be relied on uh, after we saw mass protests in Morocco and Bahrain uh, um, in support of Palestine. Uh, So Blinken will, I think, you know, be there. He'll be, you know, reinforcing U.S. support uh, for Israel. But at the same time, we've seen a a kind of more measured approach, a more measured language from the White House. Uh, Biden used the term, you know, humanitarian pause in a speech last night when uh, asked, when kind of heckled by a protester, uh, who was asking for a ceasefire. Uh, and I think Blinken will kind of, you know, particularly after Jabalia, be kind of emphasizing that Israel needs to truly, you know, make a real effort to minimize civilian casualties. And I think we've heard them saying that, but we haven't necessarily seen them doing that. And, you know, you touched on it there, relations with uh, regional neighbours are deteriorating for Israel. How much uh, do you think that that is genuine among the leaderships in in those countries? Or is that sort of more having to respond to their own populations who are often uh, deeply critical and unhappy with Israel? Uh, I mean, I think it's revealing that there was always a slight disconnect in, you know, the regimes which are mostly, you know, kind of authoritarian regimes um, that, you know, don't necessarily have a kind of wide democratic mandate from their countries, you know, doing deals with the Israeli government, uh, which is what we kind of largely saw with the Abraham Accords. Uh, and really, there wasn't maybe, you know, a groundswell of public support for that. Uh, and again, you know, a month ago, you know, Israel was discussing, you know, normalizing um, relations with Saudi Arabia. And it seems, you know, very clear that that is not going to happen in the immediate horizon. Uh, And the fact that, you know, we've seen kind of backsliding in relations uh, between Israel and Jordan uh, and, you know, Israel and and Egypt, you know, who they already have peace agreements negotiated with is definitely, um, I'm sure, worrying for uh, the Israeli government. And it seems to kind of, you know, put them in reverse in terms of the strategy that they had for Israel within the Middle East. Mm. And turning now to the Rafa crossing, uh, there has been movement of some people across it, but it has been a pretty confused situation there. Yeah, I, th- I think quite a lot of um, you know, foreign governments were slightly blindsided on Wednesday morning when they heard they got kind of this notification that you know some foreign nationals would be uh, allowed to leave through the Rafa crossing and some uh, UN and NGO officials, uh, about 600 people uh, kind of were included in that list. 
Um, it's not really clear how why certain countries are being prioritized or not. For example, you know, there was about 200 Jordanians uh, in the list for yesterday. Uh, we're now seeing kind of uh, the US included today and, and a couple of other European countries. Um, still no kind of uh, mention of British citizens. Uh, so I'm sure behind the scenes, you know, countries that have not been included on the two lists I've seen so far are definitely, you know, reaching out uh, about having their citizens included in the next uh, tranche of evacuees. At the same time, you know, what's adding to the confusion around these these uh, evacuations is that many people do not have, you know, phone coverage. They don't know whether they're on the list or not. They don't, may not be able to receive messages from their foreign embassies about, you know, whether they should go to RAFA or not. People don't want to, you know, make unnecessary um, trips to RAFA, you know, while there are um, bombings ongoing, you know, to wait for an evacuation that may not happen uh, for several days for them. Mm. Uh, and, you know, many people have already been going to Rafa kind of sporadically over the last two weeks. Hannah, thank you. That was Hannah McCarthy in Jerusalem. Now, shifting focus to Israel's northern border, where there's continuing daily fire exchanges between Israeli forces and Hezbollah in Lebanon. The Institute for the Study of War Reporting is reporting that Iran and Hezbollah are continuing to promote the expectation that Hezbollah will announce some kind of escalation against Israel tomorrow. Jean Loup Saman is a senior research fellow at the National University of Singapore's Middle East Institute. Jean, thank you for joining us. Firstly, what would an escalation on the northern border look like, do we think? Well, at the moment, we don't know exactly how uh, Hezbollah would uh, escalate. We'll uh, probably know more tomorrow when uh, the Secretary General Hassan Nasrallah of the organization makes uh, a very much awaited uh, speech. But c- Taking into consideration the capabilities of Hezbollah, this might uh, involve uh, an escalation in terms of rocket attacks. So far, we have to take note that the rocket attacks from Hezbollah on Israel have been quite modest. We're talking about 100 rocket attacks in the last uh, months. So this is really low compared to what you see in terms of the, uh, the rocket attacks coming from Gaza. So Maybe uh, we'll see more rocket attacks, but we have also to take into consideration that a lot of the villages and the cities around the border uh, between Israel and uh, Lebanon have been evacuated. So even if Hezbollah launches a ground incursion, uh, they will be very quickly met with the Israeli Defense Forces. So at the moment, I think we're mostly talking about rocket, uh, rocket attacks. How perilous would it be for Israel's attention to be split like this if it is ramped up on the northern border? Well, the the problem with Hezbollah is uh, a problem of quantity and quality of the arsenal. Uh, it has about 150,000 rockets uh, plus ballistic missiles that would make the mission of the Israeli air defense much more difficult than uh, the arsenal of Hamas or the Islamic Jihad in Gaza Strip. Uh, It means that uh, systems such as Iron Dome could be very quickly overwhelmed. And uh, that that would put uh, tremendous pressure on the IDF. There's also the fact that uh, most of the US uh, military posture right now, the deployment of the aircraft carrier uh, uh, offshore, 
uh, is about deterring Hezbollah from entering into this uh, war. So if Hezbollah escalates, this uh, will also force the U.S. Uh, to do something about it. So uh, this this may change also the, the logic, which is so far mostly about Israel against Hamas. This may add uh, other factors such as not just Hezbollah, but what would be the U.S. response. And there are two uh, U.S. Uh, aircraft carrier groups in the Mediterranean. I mean, if Hezbollah does step up its response uh, and if even Iran potentially directly engaged with Israel, I mean, what are the parameters for what those carrier groups can do? Well, first, uh, the, 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 the primary mission would be about air defense. So it would or add to the uh, air defense of Israel against that type of uh, uh, missiles and uh, and uh, rockets. But then the question is, if uh, you have uh, uh, the, the U.S. Uh, responding uh, directly to a Hezbollah attack, or if you have a U.S. Uh, 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 ships being the target of Hezbollah, that so far, I doubt this, that the Hezbollah uh, forces would uh, attempt uh, an attack on uh, U.S. forces. I think they will mostly target Israeli uh, northern cities like they've done in the past weeks. Uh, but definitely the U.S. will probably uh, escalate its own rhetoric, uh, probably not to Hezbollah, but also to Iran, because the U.S. Uh, rightfully so consider that if Hezbollah escalates, that's also Iran behind it. And just finally, uh, there's also been clashes between militia groups and U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria. How are these related? This is related in the sense that uh, those militias uh, are backed by uh, Iran. So you have a clear uh, coherence at the moment uh, across the region. You have not only just Hamas, the Islamic Jihad or Hezbollah that we discussed, but also militias in Syria, in Iraq, and as well as the Houthis in Yemen, which are all supported by Iran and which have declared publicly that they, uh, they were at war with uh, Israel and the U.S. So far, again, if we look at what has been happening in Syria, in Iraq, this is quite low in, in terms of the intensity. Uh, we've seen a, a few rockets being fired. It doesn't mean that this will not escalate and this will heavily depend on how the ground invasion of Gaza by the uh, Israelis in, unfolds. Uh, but at the moment, it seems to be more symbolical, a way for Iran proxies to express uh, their discontent and their assertiveness vis-a-vis -vis the US. Uh, but we don't see at the moment a full-scale escalation. Jean-Luc Samin in Singapore, thank you. Now here's Laura Kramer with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Vincent. Crowds gathered in Beijing and flags were flown at half-mast across China as the country's former premier was laid to rest. Known as the People's Premier, Li Keqiang had been tipped as a future leader before being sidelined by Xi Jinping. Russia has struck an oil refinery in central Ukraine, setting it ablaze and shutting down power in three villages. It comes after Kyiv said Moscow's forces had launched airstrikes on some 120 Ukrainian towns and villages within 24 hours, causing deaths and injuries.
Brazil's President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva will send thousands of armed forces to the country's key airports, ports and borders in a bid to tackle organized crime. The move comes after a spate of violent incidents in Rio de Janeiro state. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Vincent. Thanks, Laura. With the conflict in Israel dominating global attention for almost a month now, events in Ukraine haven't been as closely monitored. But in the past 24 hours, the country has experienced its most intensive shelling this year. More than 100 settlements across 10 regions have come under renewed rocket fire. Aliona Hlivko is a former regional Ukrainian MP and the managing director of the Henry Jackson Society, a foreign policy think tank that advocates advocates for liberal democracy, the rule of law and the market economy. Aliona, thanks for joining us once again. Uh, firstly, can you describe just how intensive was this latest round of shelling from Russia? Hello, Vincent. It's nice to be back on. Um, As we can see, as the winter approaches, Russia intensifies its attacks on civilian infrastructure. And it's actually anticipated that as soon as the temperature drops below zero, um, they will start hitting all the power plants that provide electricity and heat. And unfortunately, this series of attacks is something that Ukrainians have been expecting. As the world is turned the other way, as everyone is watching Middle East war, um, Russia is intensifying its brutal attacks. And what is the feeling amongst ordinary Ukrainians about the state of the conflict as it heads into another winter? Ukrainians are exhausted, Vincent. You know, we hear about this uh, Ukraine fatigue in the West. Um, The word that we would use in Ukraine is exhaustion because people have been fighting, being extremely mobilized. Uh, without having any holidays or rests or breaks uh, for 18 months now, um, or even more than that. Um, and of course, the price that Ukrainians are paying for the war grows every day, uh, and it's becoming more tragic um, by the day, unfortunately. But at the same time, we simply don't have any luxury to just give up and uh, leave the situation as is. We need to stay mobilised and keep fighting this war. And on that point, Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni shared the observation uh, that uh, there was a fatigue in Europe now about this war. Kiev has also described it as entering a new static phase. Uh, Is this becoming quite a perilous time because everyone is simply, as you say, just too exhausted? Unfortunately, the attention span is something that the Western audience loses um, quite quickly. And of course, we live in such troubling times where we're experiencing another war breaking out in the Middle East. Uh, There is a lot of risks and arriving threats um, in in Indo-Pacific with countries like China and North Korea joining the evil axis along with Iran and Russia. So, of course, it is it must be really hard to keep the attention focused where it needs to be specifically on peaceful civilians in Ukraine, when there's so much going on in the world, especially going into the next year's election cycle, with elections being held in the UK, the US, the European Union. It's a trialing time, but I think it is the time for countries uh, who are part of NATO and countries who are part of Western alliances to prove their global leadership. 
And on that point, there is new leadership in Congress in the United States, Speaker Mike Johnson. There are renewed calls from Republicans in his caucus uh, to strip out aid for Ukraine. They don't want it combined with the Israeli aid package. They're making other demands, being it linked to US border security. What are the concerns like in Kyiv at the moment for how uh, sort of unanimous the support is going to continue to be from Washington, D.C.? I think Ukrainian capital has uh, started worrying about aid coming from the United States uh, some time ago because the signals that we were receiving came earlier. Um, It's true that the United States, unfortunately, has fallen victim to its electoral cycle. And Ukraine has become one of the strong elements to argue between the two parties who um, effectively battle for votes. Um, U.S. aid is limited and, of course, having so many crises to face, um, they need to divide it sparely. Um, And there are talks about um, maybe reallocating the IRS funds towards Ukraine and the border and Taiwan. Israel, unfortunately, being the first thing on the agenda, the hottest topic and the latest one. Aliana Hill. uh, Still gets priority in the Senate, and that comes of no surprise. However, I hope that um, the United States and the American people recognize that the war in Ukraine is not going away anywhere, and it risks not just being a protracted regional conflict. It is actually part of the global war that's happening in the world right now. Aliona Hilvko, thank you very much. And apologies, listeners, for the slight dropout on that line there. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Now to America, where the American Ornithological Society announced on Wednesday that birds in North America will no longer be named after people. Next year, the organization will begin to rename around 80 species found in the US and Canada. Amanda Chuk is a nature writer and author of the 30-Minute Birder column for Birdwatch magazine. Amanda, thank you for joining us. Firstly, why have they taken this decision? Um, So I think what we're looking at here is a real attempt to address issues around inclusion and diversity. Many of the names um, that have been used um, for these US bird names um, relate to, um, I guess, white birder conservationists from um, some years ago, some of which have quite controversial um, histories and rather than I think that the society rather than picking through each of the names and working out which ones need to go have made a very sensible decision which is to look at all birds which are called after people. Yeah and the society previously renamed a bird that referred to a confederate army general in 2020. Um, I mean is this going to cause confusion though internationally with what birds are being talked about or were these very kind of US specific names for birds? Um, Well, bear in mind what we're talking about are English common names, so it won't um, necessarily change the scientific Latin names, um, which is how, you know, how birders um, in many ways communicate about birds internationally. Um, Will it make life difficult for birders? Um, It's not going to have much effect on UK birders because the birds we're talking about predominantly US species. 
Um, I suspect there'll be some teeth grinding over the name changes in the US. Um, but then birders come from all different population groups, walks of life, political persuasions. And I hope that many of them would see this decision as important and necessary in the interests of inclusion and diversity. I suspect there will be a minority that may think this is just more wokery, but um, we, we would anticipate that. And on that point, have we seen any pushback yet or are people sort of happy to do this? I haven't. Um, I mean, the, the, the news was released yesterday, so um, it's probably early days. But I suspect there's quite a lot of dis- vigorous discussion behind the scenes. Um, it, I mean, in terms of it, whether it's a, a, a sense a source of debate in birding circles generally, I'm not sure that it's seen as particular issue in the UK and that would be I'm just flicking through my trusty field guide there's there's really only six birds in the UK that you're likely to see that are uh, named after people um so and and those won't be affected in this um renaming um but I do think that um issues of inclusion and diversity generally and how to strengthen them both in birding but also wider in natural history and conservation is a source of debate in the UK and rightly so. I mean, things are getting better. I do meet when I'm out bird watching, I meet regularly meet women birders, I meet birders of colour, I meet birders of disability. And, and it's not very long ago that that wouldn't have been the case, certainly around London. So, and um, that's yeah. an, a, an interesting point. Is, is that something you, you've noticed it, but is that something the sort of birding community is welcoming and actively now encouraging? Or, or is there a bit of sort of reticence because, uh, you know, it's quite a solo sort of pastime that people do that they're just getting on with. But are, are they wanting to make the effort to bring people in? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, just the fact that I, I can write a column in a birdwatching magazine, which is the best selling British birdwatching magazine, um, which very much um, deals with those kind of issues. And that was welcomed and actively encouraged by the the publishing company. So um, things are changing, I think. Um, And yeah, and and it's great. And it's great to see more people out there. Amanda Tuke, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Now let's head to Turin, where there's lots happening in the cultural sphere this week. The contemporary art fair Artissima has brought galleries from around the world to Turin, while the city is also gearing up for the C2C festival taking place this week. Monocle's senior correspondent Robert Bound is currently at the preview day of Artissima and joins me down the line. Rob, you're on something of a European art tour at the moment. I last spoke to you at the Paris Plus uh, last month. What does Artissima, as where does Artissima fit in alongside the other fairs like Paris and Freeze London? Well, hi, Vinny. Uh, it's good to speak to you. And the, the circus rolls onwards. Yeah, exactly. The, the big top has been pitched in Turin this week for Artissima. It's its 30th year. Uh, and to answer your question, it differs from Freeze and from Paris Plus, which is an art Basel fair, from the fact that those fairs kind of take the market as their focus and the market spreads out amongst the city to the to the galleries and, and museums and auction houses. But Artissima is very much part of Turin Art Week. And it seems like Turin Art Week and the contemporary and modern galleries of Turin kind of more founded the fair. So it's, 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 a, it's a fair that's in the, in, in the image of the city rather than the, in the city reflecting the image of a fair, uh, if that's fair to say. And looking out, I'm standing at the press area, 
which le looks out across all of the booths here um, at the main uh, at the main fair, and I see a lot of the cross section of quite avant-garde European galleries and, and and contemporary European art at the moment. So it's a really important touchstone for curators, museum directors, as much as people looking for something lovely to go above their fireplace. And what are some of the highlights of this year's fair? Um, well, the fair, itself, as I say, the fair itself is 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 super high quality. So this is a, a wonderful sort of one stop shop um, for people. Uh, and as you'd expect, as I say, this is part of Turin Art Week, so it spills out into the galleries and the public institutions um, and and some of the exciting uh, uh, venues. Um, most amazing of which, uh, and you might be familiar with this in Turin, is the Pinacoteca Agnelli, named for the Italian plutocrat, the founder of Fiat. It's that amazing thing that used to be the Fiat factory with the crazy test track on the top of it. So there are some amazing exhibitions and, um, art, and art fest spillovers happening there. There are all sorts of things happening across the town as well. The Human Condition, <laughs> a boring title. Um, but a wonderful show that seems to look at that is a largely a photographic show that, that aims to kind of um, lift the lid on what it is to be human in the 21st century as well as well your new news program um, might ask um, and there are things called Nuevo Uovo which I presume translates as new egg which is where they've got a variety of contemporary artists to respond to farming by um, by designing and building um, beautiful uh, hen hutches, uh, chicken sheds, I suppose, uh, which we're going to we're, we're going to inspect, inspect later on today. <laughs> and tell us a bit more <laughs> about C2C. The festival describes itself as a showcase of avant pop. Yeah, so that's so that that's what happens in the evening. So the Turin Art Week is, and that's it's in its twenty first year. It used to be called Club to Club. Uh, and that is, uh, yeah, a big electronic and avant-garde music festival, which happens in the evenings. So you are tomorrow. We might be in slightly rougher shape um, if we had this check-in tomorrow, because <laughs> there is a lot of there's a lot of dancing in the evening, and there's a lot of um, chin wagging and looking at paintings in the daytime. Um, but it really does feel, I mean, from dawn to dusk and everything in between, it does feel like um, an amazing kind of cultural explosion in Turin and it's Turin in November you know it, it's it's a it's a wet grey day here but it's also truffle season so there and, and so there's there are there are there are plenty of places to hide and what does the rest of your week look like in Turin apart from truffles and rain <laughs> so so yeah we're going to be doing some more we're going to be doing another check-in I believe from uh, C to C uh, a little bit later um, we're putting together a culture show, which is going out on Monday night uh, on Monocle Radio, which is going to be focusing on Turin Art Week. So it's going to take us from kind of from dawn uh, to dusk and it's going to take us from the art fair to C2C and some of the some of the artists, DJs um, uh, and organisers of that event. So it's a real kind of it's a very complete it's a very complete week for, for contemporary culture here in, in northern Italy and Piedmont. Robert Bound in Turin. Thank you very much. Let's turn again to the Arctic, which we've been devoting special attention to throughout this week on Monocle Radio. You might think South Korea, at around 3,000 kilometres from the Arctic Circle, would have little to say on the region. But as a major player in the global shipping industry, Seoul has an interest in the additional shipping routes created by melting polar ice. But expanding its operations in the region won't be easy without some interaction with Russia – which is currently heavily sanctioned over its war in Ukraine. At the 2023 Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik, Monocle's Andrew Muller put that dilemma to Seoul's ambassador for Arctic affairs, Park Chong-suk. 
So at the present, because of the of the sanctions uh, toward uh, Russia, we cannot uh, directly uh, uh, cooperate with the Russian government or Russian Russian companies. It's a difficult time, but it's not a difficult time only for for Korea, because Russia is a very important stakeholders in the Arctic region. So scientifically, commercially, every country is suffering difficulties. But on the other hand, there's many stakeholders like Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and the United States. So we are also uh, cooperating bilaterally with other nations. Do you see the Arctic, though, as an arena of potential competition with South Korea's neighbours in your part of the world? Because there, there is a competition on a number of fronts and in a number of respects with China and Japan, which obviously both take an interest in the Arctic as well. I don't see any competition among these North Asian countries because uh, until uh, 2019, we had a trilateral uh, is this is government level uh, conversation uh, related to Arctic region, focused on the the scientific cooperation. How can we uh, make contribution toward the, the Arctic, Arctic region by using our uh, technology and our expertise? But I think this cooperation this is not only limited to China, Korea, Japan, but also we have two other important stakeholders in Asia, Singapore and India. Maybe someday, this is my just a personal prospect, but maybe someday we can extend our cooperation. Where do you see the greatest opportunities for, well, for Korea perhaps, but for diplomacy in the Arctic more generally? We have a very big manpower. The Korean Polar Institute has around 400 experts, researchers. So at the present, we are focusing on making more contribution toward the, the Arctic Council through our scientific research this technology and uh, the experience. But someday, if the geopolitical tension, the, the conflict ease, someday then we can go ahead. More such as the Arctic shipping route is also a very important issue. Mm. And as you see the map, the geographical map, we can reach the Arctic region through ship by Bering Sea. Mm-hmm. It's very, very close to South Korea and North Korea. So this is another field for us to be engaged in this, uh, this Arctic region. Park Chong-suk there, South Korea's ambassador for Arctic affairs, speaking to Monocle's Andrew Muller. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Laura Kramer. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Tamsin Howard. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye and thank you for listening. Thank you.